Gloria. Asatara Satashri Srimadha's Divine Grace A.C. Bhaktivedanta Swami Maharaj Prabhupada Srimadha. This time founder of Charya Srila Prabhupada Kijai, Anantakoti Vaishnavindi Kijai, Namacharya Shaharidas Thakur Kijai, Prem Shikarshi Krishna Chaitanya Prabhupada Shidori Tigadadar Shivasadi Gora Bhaktivindi Kijai, Shri Shri Radha Krishna Gogopinashai Mukunda Radha Kunda Giri Govardhan Kijai, Vrindavan Dhamma Kijai, Matura Dhamma Kijai, Navadrit Mayapur Dhamma Kijai, Jagannath Puri Dhamma Kijai, Gangamaya Jaina Devi Kijai, Bhakti Devi Kijai, Tulsi Maharani Kijai, Samaveta Bhakti Vrinda Kijai, Gaur Premanande. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to Sri Guru and Gauranga. All glories to Shiva Prabhupada. Nama Om Vishnu Padaya Krishna Prasthaya Bhutale Srimati Bhakti Vedanta Swami Bhutti Namine. Namaste Saraswati Deve Gauravani Pachani Nivasesu Sanyavadi Paskachade Satani. Mandeham Sri Guru Sri Utah Padakambalam Sri Guru Vaishnavamscha. Sri Rupam Sarvajatam Sahagana Raghunatam Vitamsam Sajivam. Sadvaitam Sadvritam Parijana Saita Krishna Chaitanya Deva Sri Radha Krishna Padam Sagana Lalita Sri Vishakam Vitamscha Panchakalpa Jubischa Kipasindviyeva Chapaditanam Pavanevya Vaishnavi Namo Namaha Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya so it is October 6, 2021, and over the internet from Hilo, Hawaii, and we're reading from Srimad Bhagavatam, Canto 4, Chapter 28, Paranjana Becomes a Woman in the Next Life, Text 37. Oh, there you are, Mahalakshmi. Finally. You're wondering where you were. Okay, Sitoshna Vatavarshani. Shoot Pipase Priya Priya. Sukha duke iti duan. Wait. Sukha duke iti duan duan. The Y is going to have to be said with the next one. Ya jayat samadarshana. Shita. Cold. Dushna. Heat. Vata. 
Wind. Varshani. And rainy seasons. Shoot. Hunger. Pipase. And thirst. Priya. Pleasant. Apriye. And unpleasant. Sukha. Happiness. Duke. And distress. Iti. Thus. Dwandwani. Dualities. Ajayat. He conquered. Samadarshanaha. Equipoised. Srila Prabhupada's translation Through austerity, King Malayadwaja, in body and mind, gradually became equal to the dualities of cold and heat, happiness and distress, wind and rain, hunger and thirst, the pleasant and the unpleasant. In this way, he conquered all relativities. Srila Prabhupada's purport Liberation means becoming free from the relativities of the world. Unless one is self-realized, he has to undergo the dual struggle of the relative world. In Bhagavad Gita, Lord Krishna advises Arjuna to conquer all relativities through tolerance. Lord Krishna points out that it is the relativities like winter and summer that give us trouble in the material world. In the winter, we do not like taking a bath, but in the summer, we wish to take a bath twice, thrice, or more a day. In other words, it's not the bath or the water that is intrinsically pleasing or displeasing. It's neutral. Thus, Krishna advises us not to be disturbed by such relativities and dualities when they come and go. The common man also has to undergo much austerity to become equipoised before dualities. One who becomes agitated by the relativities of life has accepted a relative position and must therefore undergo the austerities prescribed in the Shastras to transcend the material body and put an end to material existence. King Malayadwaja underwent severe austerities by leaving his home, going to Kulachala, taking his bath in the sacred rivers, and eating only vegetables like stems, roots, seeds, flowers, and leaves, avoiding any cooked food or grains. These are very, very austere practices. In this age, it is very difficult to leave home and go to the forest or the Himalayas to adopt the process of austerity. Indeed, it is almost impossible. If one is even advised to give up meat-eating, drinking, gambling, and illicit sex, one will fail to do so. What then would a person do if you went to the Himalayas or Kulachala? Such acts of renunciation are not possible in this age. Therefore, Lord Krishna has advised us to accept the bhakti-yoga process. Bhakti-yoga will automatically liberate a person from the dualities of life. In bhakti-yoga, Krishna is the center, and Krishna is always transcendental. 
Thus, in order to transcend dualities, one must always engage in the service of the Lord, as confirmed by Bhagavad Gita 14.26, Mam tayo vyavicharina, bhakti yogena sevate sagunan samatichetam brahmabhuyaya kalpate. One who engages in full devotional service, who does not fall down in any circumstance, at once transcends the modes of material nature and thus comes to the level of Brahman. If one is factually engaged in the service of the Lord, Bhakti Yoga, he will automatically control his senses, his tongue, and so many other things. Once engaged in the Bhakti Yoga process with all sincerity, one will have no chance of falling down. Even if one falls down, there is no loss. One's devotional activities may be stunned or choked for the time being, but as soon as there is another chance, the practitioner begins from the point where he left off. Sitoshna vata varshani kshut pipase priya priye sukaduke iti dwandwam yajayat samadarshinaha. Through austerity, King Malayadwaj, in body and mind, gradually became equal to the dualities of cold and heat, happiness and distress, wind and rain, hunger and thirst, the pleasant and the unpleasant. In this way, he conquered all relativities. So here, Srila Prabhupada says in the first sentence of the purport, liberation means becoming free from the relativities of the world. And if we're looking at this list, I like the priya-priya, priya and apriya, what's pleasing and what's not pleasing. And Prabhupada makes the point, as he often makes, about water. So is bathing in water pleasing or not pleasing? So if it's cold outside, it's not very pleasing to bathe in water, unless the water's warm or hot and the room is warm. And if it's hot outside, bathing in water is very pleasing. One time I was in Mayapur Dam in early August when it was not only extremely hot, but extremely humid. And I don't think I'd ever in my life been in a place that was that hot and that humid. I was staying in a devotee's apartment where the shower could barely be called a shower. It was just a pipe that came out of the wall. And I was having to bathe like five times a day. I was having to bathe my head five times a day. Uh, what would happen was it would get so hot that I actually I couldn't think anymore. My, my brain wouldn't work. <laughs> I wasn't able to focus or do anything. I felt like I had to cool down my brain. <laughs> uh, but if you told me right now, take five baths a day, then I'd say, oh, I don't want to take five baths a day. It would be an austerity, whereas then it was a pleasure. So it's, it's like that in this world. What we consider pleasurable, what we consider uh, unpleasurable, what we consider pleasing, what we consider displeasing. It's conditional. It's not that things in and of themselves are pleasing or displeasing in this world. Everything in this world is actually neutral. Everything. Our perception of pleasing or displeasing depends on circumstances. I mean, another example that Srila Prabhupada often gives is pigs, right? That pigs, they'll find uh, excrement, they'll find stool to be pleasing, and they don't necessarily find halva to be pleasing, right? Whereas for us, it's exactly the opposite. We find stool to be revolting, and we find halva to be pleasing. But is it revolting or is it pleasing? They're... There, it, there really isn't any absolute about it at all. It's all conditional. depends on who you are. You know, there's these uh, Japanese beetle larvae around our property right now here at the temple. And they're 
to us as humans, they're revolting. I mean, they're really revolting. It looks like some creature from a hellish planet. They're, 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 they're just disgusting. One feel, feels a sense of revulsion and nausea just looking at these creatures. Um, but to the members of their same species, they're not revolting. The members of the same species find them, each other attractive. Right? So again, what is pleasing, what is displeasing? Um, there's, there's no absolute. It's all relative, as Prabhupada says, relativities. So liberation is when one has an atmosphere of neutrality. Not even to say, well, yes, it's very pleasing, but I'm not interested. But it's not pleasing or displeasing. It's everything is neutral. And Prabhupada talks about this as the austerities, right? Austerities, he talks about tolerance. So it, it's a question that does one practice neutrality toward the relativities in order to become liberated? Uh, or does, become, does one become liberated by a different type of practice, which then makes one automatically neutral towards all these relativities? And of course the answer is both. <laughs> that uh, practice, intentional practice of a mood of neutrality is essential to become liberated, and becoming liberated also gives you a mood of neutrality towards these relativities. Mm-hmm. Yes. And it's very interesting. There was a, a talk the other day on the internet between Namarasa people. He does this podcast called The Late Morning Program. And this devotee, Sundar Nittai, uh, Sundar Nittai grew up in Krishna consciousness, took initiation uh, from Bhaktivedanta Narayan Maharaj. And he's working on his PhD uh, right now in Oxford. And he was talking a lot about the inherent nature of the soul. And he made a point which I found to be one of the best points on this discussion, this philosophical discussion. And that is that any follower of the Vedas, it doesn't matter whether one is a personalist or an impersonalist, whether one is a Vaishnava or a Shaivite or a Shakta or whatever one may be, that liberation or enlightenment or perfection is always defined as a removal of that which is false. It's never defined as adding anything. In other words, the nature of the pure being is already there. And what has to be done to become liberated is to remove that covering. And he said, there's, there's no Vedic Shastra, there's no bona fide Sampradaya, there's no Acharya that ever talks about adding something. It's only subtracting what is false. The real is already there. So I thought this was a very important and salient point. So here again, Prabhupada's saying, the liberation is defined as freedom from, right? Let's see again, what does he say exactly? Liberation means becoming free from the relativities of this world. Getting rid of that. Of of concepts of priya-priya. What is good and what is bad in the world. Um, Like Krishna says, be uh, free from all anxieties for gain and safety and be established in the self. Yes, in Bhagavad Gita 245. 
uh, near yoga, kshema, atmavan. Be free from all anxieties for gain and safety and be established in the self. And throughout the Bhagavad Gita, I mean, Prabhupada's referring, of course, here to Madras, Barshas, Tukanteya, Sitoshana, Sukudukuda, Agamapayanonitas, Tamsatikshasrabharata. We have the Sitoshana again in this verse. Uh, Krishna is referring, one needs to become neutral to this. And of course, in the 12th chapter, when Krishna is describing the devotee who is dear to him, he's describing a state of neutrality towards all kinds of things, right? Throughout the Bible, we get so many places to be free from, to be neutral towards honor and dishonor, fame and infamy, friends, enemies, and the neutral, right? Heat and cold, happiness and distress, fame, infamy, and so many things. Uh, this list of all of the things that one should become a neutral toward. So that is liberation. These are all false things. And when one no longer has any care, one becomes... Uh, emotionally flat. Sometimes Prabhupada will even use the word callous. That w- there's just there's just no feeling toward them at all. There's no feeling of attachment and there's no feeling of revulsion. It's just flat. Right? And we all have experiences of things in this world towards which we just feel completely neutral. Right? We just... Uh, we have no investment in those things. And so we just, we have a mood of neutrality. I mean, of the seven billion people on this planet, you know, I know a few hundred, maybe a few thousand. But as far as no well, I, you know, maybe a few hundred people well. And so if you tell me about what somebody's doing in Mongolia, and uh, I, I'm neutral towards it. I don't have any feeling for it or against it. You know, somebody in Mongolia has lost money or gained money or got married or (coughs) (coughs) their child died. (coughs) My mood is one of neutrality. Because it's not doing anything for me. Like this example of water again is if the water is doing something pleasing for me if it's reducing the heat in my body, and then I want it. And if it's increasing the cold in my body, then I don't want it. So we're thinking of things as being pleasing or displeasing by whether or not they fulfill our desires and identities of this body and mind. You know, I like people who do nice things for me. I like people who give me food. I like people who give me shelter. I like people who give me praise. (laughs) I like people who help me do things that I find pleasurable. And if people threaten those things, then I don't like them. And if people neither facilitate me nor threaten me, then I'm neutral. So again, this means it's not intrinsically the things. It's not that some person is intrinsically pleasing or displeasing. They're pleasing or displeasing according to what they can do for me, and it's a false me. What they can do for this body, what they can do for this mind. And of course that gets extended to, you know, if somebody's helping me and you're nice to them, then you're pleasing to me. You know, my family, my clan, my my swajana, you know, <coughs> those people who 
as Prabhupada would call it, extended sense gratification. You know, so if somebody's taking care of me and you threaten them, then I feel that you're also threatening me and you become displeasing to me. And of course, this concept of priya-priye puts us into tremendous anxiety that we're constantly trying to arrange our lives so that objects and circumstances and living beings that are pleasing to me are surrounding me and I have easy access to them and circumstances and things and activities and living beings that are not pleasing to me are removed from my environment. Uh, This is basically (laughs) the human history in a nutshell. You know, friends, enemies, and neutral. Whether we're thinking of it in terms of weather, or we're thinking of it in terms of food, of people, and like that. And so we're constantly in anxiety. That how can I, how can I adjust the world to have the pleasing things around me and the displeasing things far from me? And we're never free of anxiety. So, you know, in this particular moment in time where I am right now, I have all relatively pleasing things. I mean, it's a little hot, humid today, so the weather's not so pleasing. But nobody's threatening me, nothing's threatening me, I'm feeling healthy, and I had a nice breakfast today, and I had some good time with some friends already this morning. Uh, But that doesn't last. I, I know from experience that it's just a matter of time before somebody says or does something that I don't like, or my body feels uncomfortable in some way, or, you know, whatever. <laughs> something something will happen to disturb the present state of, of equilibrium, right? And, and therefore, we're always in anxiety. What will happen? What will happen? What will happen? What will happen? So how does one get liberated from this and come to a state of perfect peace? Because Krishna says there's no happiness without peace. So one way of doing this is to work uh, through the process of austerity. Prabhupada says austerity of body and mind. There's also, of course, austerity of speech. And these practices are common to all the four main types of yoga, karma yoga, jnana yoga, jnana yoga, and bhakti yoga, or any combination of those, if you have, you know, karma misra bhakti, or jnana misra bhakti, or jnana misra bhakti. Anyway, you combine the yogas, or you combine karma and jnana, or jnana and jnana. Some type of deliberate austerity. And austerity means doing something that's difficult, intentionally accepting something that's difficult. You know, there's these austerities where the yogis go in the cold water in the winter, and they go in the, around the fire in the summer. In other words, they intentionally expose themselves to things which are not pleasing. They force themselves to accept things that they would normally reject. And by forcing themselves to accept things that they would normally reject, they gradually realize that the things in and of themselves are neutral. And they gradually get a mood of neutrality. And Prabhupada's talking about the austerities that Malaya Dwaja is doing in order to achieve this. So he's going to a holy place, away from other people, and his eating especially is very austere. 
And he's saying that this is practically speaking impossible in this world, and, and I'll vouch for that. I remember one time at the end of Kartik that some of the Gurukul students and I decided that we wanted to do this, you know, five days of austere eating at the end of Kartik, and we were told that we should just eat fruits and roots, <laughs> fruits and roots with no uh, sugar, spices, and so forth. Of course, we kind of cheated by figuring out the dates were fruits, <laughs> and we kind of survived with dates. <laughs> making uh, like uh, we're blending up dates and and pouring that on, on things, but it was still really, really difficult to eat food without salt, to eat food without any oils, to eat food without any spices. I mean, it, it was it was hard, and you know we found ourselves again trying to stretch it. You know, well, well what's a root? <laughs> what's a fruit? <laughs> I'm to try to, you know, you see devotees do this on a codice. You know, codice is supposed to be a day where you eat very, very simply. Like sometimes Srila Prabhupada will say just like fruits and milk. Uh, but all of us, I mean myself included, will say, okay, what opulent recipe can I make without grains and beans? I remember Bhakti Chiruswami said that, you know, often we're feasting on a codice. It's supposed to be a fast day. And instead of that, we're making an ecodicy feast. So this is this because it's difficult. Even you know, even two days a month, right? I mean, there are many devotees, of course, who do a full fast, two days a month. They they don't eat any food, or some don't eat any food or drink any water. I know some people they don't eat any food, drink any water, or get any sleep. Uh, but it it's hard. It's definitely hard. And if we said, okay, two days a month, you're just eating some you know, fruit and milk. <laughs> Again, you can see it's hard by how we respond. You know, we respond by coming up. I have a, a very good friend who's made an ecodicy cookbook. <laughs> All these fancy things to make. I'm laughing, but, I, you know, I do it myself. All these fancy things to make on ecodicy. And, and Prahila Prabhupada's saying just to follow the four regulative principles, which is funny how he, how he puts it here. Let's see, how does he put it in this purport? If one is even advised to give up meat-eating, drinking, gambling, and illicit sex. So he doesn't even say intoxication. He just says drinking. <laughs> and he doesn't even include eggs. He just says meat-eating. He says, he says one will fail to do so. And we see this frankly. You know, we see it frankly. That we see so many people who want to say that they're members of our society. Uh, they, they, they struggle to follow this, you know, oh yeah, I'm a vegetarian, oh, well, do you eat things with eggs? Well, you know, if I go out, <laughs> my friend's having a birthday party and the cake has eggs, what can I do? There's eggs in the cake, and so forth. Right? It's, and, and we've seen, I mean, illicit sex is a big one. And we've seen uh, so many, even initiated, second-initiated devotees where, you know, what to say? Even even renunciates. And we find out that they've had, you know, four girlfriends or they've been seeing prostitutes. I mean, it's it's obviously very difficult just to follow those four things. Is is extremely difficult. Even for people who, you know, are ostensibly serious about spiritual life. Uh, it's difficult. 
So the point of these austerities, the point that the idea of these austerities is that uh, one learns that one can be happy without being concerned about the favorable or the unfavorable. That, that's the concept. You get, by doing these austerities, you get a practical experience that, wow, my happiness is not dependent on having nice food. My happiness is not dependent on having a pleasant temperature. My happiness is not dependent. I mean, we have some of these austerities where the person will walk through the world uh, disheveled and like, a, like there's something wrong with them. And people will harass them and they don't respond. Right? Rishabh Dev did this, Sukadev Goswami did this, Maharaj Yudhisthira did this at the end of his life. And after a while of practicing a non-responsiveness, that they realize it doesn't matter that people's insults, that people's condemnations, it's not, it doesn't make any difference. I mean, one of the relevant things I read is from St. Teresa of Avila. She was a Christian Carmelite nun in the same time as Mahaprabhu. And I have this essay posted on my website. And she writes about not responding when people blame us unjustly. That when we are criticized unjustly, untruthfully, simply not responding. Our, she says the only time one should respond is if not responding would cause harm to someone else. And it's interesting, she says that she's never had to practice this austerity because she never gets blamed unjustly. She said whenever anyone criticizes her, she can always think of something she's done wrong that no one has criticized her, and so she figured that this is a criticism uh, is therefore justified. But our tendency when someone criticizes us, especially unjustly, is to defend ourselves and often to attack the other person. And it's a very strong tendency. I mean, it was maybe a week ago when somebody criticized me and I felt very unfairly. And I did not respond, but I was the, the inner urge was to say, that's not true. <laughs> that's not true. And what about you? <laughs> you you're also like that. <laughs> so this is the general tendency. It's not true. I'm really a good person. I really didn't do that. And, and what about you? Are you such a good person? Do you always do that or not do that? Or whatever they're accusing us of. And to, to fight. To take it as a threat and to fight. So one kind of austerity is you just don't. You just don't. I mean, recently I read it was like 130 pages. A devotee had, had taught some class. Um, I, I did not attend the class. But they taught some class. And other devotees then criticized this class. And evidently they made a website just to criticize <laughs> this poor devotee's class. He said it was altogether, if you printed it out, 150 pages of criticism for his class. So he decided to respond, and he wrote 130 pages himself of going through all the major criticisms and showing how the criticism was untrue and he was right. He gave it to me to read. So I, I was looking through it and I thought, this is actually really unpalatable 
you know, it was really unpalatable to read his his self-defense. I thought it's probably better if you just let them say whatever they wanted to say. And it's interesting with St. Teresa of Avila, she talks about how one comes to this neutrality. She says, if you practice not responding, that's an austerity. It's difficult. Everything in the body and mind is screaming to respond. And if you practice this non-response, she said, after a while, if people are criticizing you and blaming you, it sounds like they're not even talking about you. It sounds as if they're talking about someone else. In other words, one develops this neutrality. One develops this emotional flatness. So this practice of allowing ourselves to be exposed to the unpleasant without responding adversely and to allow and to have ourselves not respond favorably to the present to develop this non-responsiveness which is not repression and it's not aversion non-responsiveness means no attachment and no aversion uh, so this process of course uh, uh, definitely will bring about enlightenment but it is a difficult So another process is to go straight for enlightenment, whereby this neutrality toward the pleasant and the unpleasant come about as a side effect. And here Prabhupada is quoting, That if one is always absorbed in Krishna, that naturally one becomes neutral or uninterested toward the apparent pleasant and unpleasant of this world. Hmm. Uh, how is that? Because one is then absorbed in the uh, pleasant and apparently unpleasant of the real self. I, I posted something on social media and I ended up uh, reading more about it uh, also, about how over 20 years in Iceland the government was able to turn around the problems with alcohol and drug use of teenagers. So they went from like 50% of the teenagers, and we're talking, you know, like age 13, 14 even, uh, were taking alcohol and drugs to now only 1% or 2% of the teenagers are doing so. And what really struck me about what they did is they said that we needed to give the teenagers a more positive form of emotional and physical risk. And I thought that was really interesting. Like they were saying, if you just make sporting events available to them, that's not going to do it. But if they're joining sports teams and they're engaged, they have to show up at a certain time and they're really engaged and they're doing some aggressive sports, it fulfills that desire, fulfills that need for emotional and physical risk for which they were taking the drugs and the alcohol. So we don't want to be simply emotionally flat. We don't want to be simply emotionally neutral. To be simply emotionally neutral means ultimately to be dead. Right? My computer that I'm using to give this class, uh, it is completely emotionally neutral. Uh, 
I can take my video off. Let me take my video off and I'll see if that helps. Uh, so my computer is emotionally neutral. My computer is not happy uh, if I'm using it. It doesn't get unhappy when I hibernate it. it, it uh, it's neutral. It has no feelings. So that's not our ultimate end, and nor can we stay in a place like that. Kamalini, is it any better with... Oh, I have my video. Just jump back on again. Uh, is, all right, whatever it is, it is. Uh, so we want, we want emotional variety. We crave it as a living being. And so the idea is if there's emotional variety in spiritual life, we become neutral towards the emotional variety in this world. And it's such a simple concept. You know, if I'm eating, you know, palak paneer, then it's very easy not to eat hamburgers. I, it, it's just such a simple, simple concept. Param drisvanivartite. If I have the real thing that satisfies my real needs and my real desires in a real way, then I have, I'm not going to have any interest in the false thing. I mean, that's just, it's a pretty simple concept. It's, it's really a pretty simple concept. Now, of course, even in bhakti, there are some austerities. And one of the items of bhakti, as given by Rupa Goswami, is to be equipoised in jubilation and lamentation, to be equipoised in gain and loss. So it is part of the process of worshipping Krishna to develop this kind of neutrality. But then we go to Krishna. I mean, I had just the experience the other day, and this is a technique that I talk about a lot, where there was a devotee who, in my opinion, which is nothing more than my opinion, uh, should be doing a particular service. And this devotee said to me, well, I, I would do that service if I could, uh, but I have this problem, I don't have enough money, and mostly he was saying he didn't have enough money. He was saying, I don't have enough money, I don't have enough this, I don't have enough that. And I was feeling some irritation after that. I thought... This devotee could do that service if he wanted to. He's just making excuses. <laughs> you know, it's not that he doesn't have enough money, it's not this or that, he's just simply making excuses because he doesn't want to do the service. And I was feeling this, you know, pre-apriye. I was feeling this attraction and, and repulsion. And then I thought, why am I thinking about this person and... Well, let me just go to Krishna. And I thought, Krishna sometimes makes excuses for things. I thought, like, Krishna went to Mathura, and he's telling the gopis, you know, well, I can't come back to Vrindavan because I'm so busy killing demons, and I'm busy fulfilling the desires of my relatives. And I thought, Krishna could have come to Mathura if he wanted to. He's just making a bunch of excuses. And I started becoming, you know, really absorbing my mind and my emotions and my consciousness 
in the feelings of the resonance of Vrindavan, towards Krishna being in Mathura, Krishna being in Dwarka, and the feelings of Krishna being separated from Vrindavan. And then I found that I automatically achieved a neutrality towards whether or not that devotee did a particular service or was making excuses or whatever. It no longer affected me emotionally because I was getting my emotional satisfaction from the spiritual. So, of course, in order to do that spiritual technique, one does have to be able to recognize that one uh, is being tempted to fall into this attraction and aversion of the world. Uh, And that is an austerity. It definitely is. It's a mental austerity. It's definitely a mental austerity to be able to say, oh, to step back and say, oh, I'm being affected by this attachment and aversion in the world. Let me instead put my attention to the transcendent. Hmm? So there is some, therefore it's it's a sadhana, (laughs) there is some uh, deliberate withdrawing from the world and putting one's attention on Krishna. Of course, at the highest stage of sadhana, at a shakti, that happens very quickly. Uh, it's still sadhana, so there's still some uh, deliberateness involved, but it's very quick and it's very easy. Anything below the stage of a shakti requires some more effort on the, pa- on the part of the practitioner. Once one attains the state of bhava, uh, one is so absorbed in the spiritual emotions uh, that the uh, material emotions are hardly noticed at all, to some extent. We have the story of um, Jad Bharata. Jad Bharata, in his third life as Jad Bharata. So it is explained in the Bhagavatam that when King Rahugana insulted him, he felt waves of dissatisfaction within his mind, but he neglected them. So even Jad Bharata, who at that point was definitely on the stage of Bhava or Prema, he had some slight awareness of this natural aversion that appeared in the mind, and he chose to instead think about the spiritual. I mean, there's a a nice statement... Unmuted. There's a nice statement that Srila Prabhupada makes in in the Bhagavad Gita, and I'm just going to find that, which I find uh, actually kind of amazing. Hmm. So this is from Bhagavad Gita 270. Prabhupada says, as long as one has the material body, the demands of the body for sense gratification will continue. So that means that as long as we have a material body, we're not going to get to a point where there's no feelings of attraction or aversion in the body. Okay, going on. The devotee, however, is not disturbed by such desires because of his fullness. So again, one is getting all of one's needs met spiritually. Going on here. A Krishna conscious man is not in need of anything because the Lord fulfills all his material necessities. Therefore, he is like the ocean, always full in himself. Desires may come to him like the waters of the rivers that flow into the ocean, but he is steadying his activities and he is not even slightly disturbed by desires for sense gratification. So there are desires flowing in, but he's full. 
going on in the purport. That is the proof of a Krishna conscious man. Now listen please very carefully. One who has lost all inclination for material sense gratification, although the desires are present. Although the desires are present. So in other words, within the material body and even within the material mind, there's still going to be this inclination towards attachment and aversion, but one is so full in oneself that they're irrelevant. It's, it's not, it's a mistake to think that someone in a material body who's liberated doesn't have those things happen, doesn't have those attachments and aversions happen. It's not like that. It's that they're, they're irrelevant to him. They're just irrelevant because such a person is already getting all their needs met on the spiritual platform. All right. Uh, any questions or comments or additions? You can always get to jump in. I have a question. Okay. Oh, go ahead, Ron. Uh, okay, uh, as far as, uh, for instance, water being neutral, but then you also said, but water can be hot and cold. So that's why I don't exactly understand that specific analogy that is used a lot. It's right in the Bhagavad Gita. So, uh, you know, if water, the properties of matter do change to make it pleasant and unpleasant. It's not that it's neutral. At least I don't understand the point. Um, I mean, you might say a hot shower is pleasant in the in the winter. Uh, I mean, if you're really cold, a hot shower could warm you up, or a hot bath could warm you up. Um, but then it's the fact that it's a hot bath that warms you up. Then you're not looking at just water; you're looking at hot water. And then the, in the summer, you wouldn't be interested in the same hot water. And I mean, when I was in in India during that time, I was taking cold as cold as I could get the water. I was taking cold baths five times a day. I mean, when it's that hot, the water doesn't get that cold, but, you know, I was taking cold baths five times a day. And I would not, believe me, I would not want to take baths that cold in the winter, even once a day. You know, I've done it, but it's not pleasing. It's like, ah! How can I get in and out of this cold shower as fast as possible? (laughs) So, you know... Uh, it's, we're not comparing water to water. We're comparing cold water to cold water, hot water to hot water. In other words, the very same thing is pleasing or displeasing according to the circumstance. The thing in and of itself is not pleasing or displeasing. I mean, another good example is sleeping. Sleeping is really pleasing if I'm tired. If I'm not tired, sleeping is very displeasing. I mean, I remember when I was four and I had chicken pox. And my mother told me I had to rest, but I had a very mild case of chicken pox. I didn't feel sick at all. And so being in bed was a punishment. You know, whenever my mother would leave the room, I would get out of bed and, and play. I remember it very clearly. But, but you know, when I'm tired, then, then the bed is really pleasing. <laughs> and it's like that, you know, with, with hunger. And one of the things he's detached from here is hunger. You know, when I'm hungry, then pizza is pleasing. When I'm not hungry, pe- the same pizza is very displeasing. The same pizza. This is the best example. Thank you. You know, I mean, it's the same pizza. 
So I've, I've already eaten two pieces of pizza, or maybe I even ate three pieces of pizza, and you go to give me a fourth piece of pizza, and it's displeasing. I mean, and, and if I were to be so foolish as to eat four pieces, then a fifth piece would actually be revolting. And it's the same pizza. Because I'm hungry or I'm not hungry. Am I tired or am I not tired? Or lusty, not lusty. You know, the, the very same thing which is pleasing in one circumstance is displeasing in another. So it's, it's, not, it's not the thing. Okay, then can, I don't want to belay the point because I don't want to take your time. But just on close this, okay, so as far as the pizza goes, but depending on the combination of the material elements, you know, just like you can cook a horrible pizza, if, yeah, sure, if you're hungry enough, you'll eat it anyway, or you can cook a pizza that's really great. So I just don't understand the point about neutrality. Sorry, maybe I'm just too dull to get this. Because uh, what, but what you consider, even what you consider good and bad is depending on, on conditioning. Like there's the whole fight about whether or not pineapple should be in pizza. You know, it's what I consider pleasing, you may consider displeasing. So it's not objectively pleasing or displeasing. It, it's not some objective thing. It, it's not like this is a pleasing thing. No. Materially, nothing is pleasing and nothing is displeasing. You'd have to say pleasing to whom? Under what circumstances? Displeasing to whom? Under what circumstances? It's the, the, the particular modes that the person is in and the particular circumstances that cause us to label something pleasing and displeasing. The thing in itself is neutral. So if I'm no longer associated with the modes and I'm no longer associated with the material identity, then nothing is pleasing or displeasing in the world. Nothing. I see it for what it is. I see it as neutral. I mean, I'd like a really, 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 really simple example uh, that I'm going through right now in my life. So uh, I have taken on the service here of uh, taking care of the two big public bathrooms, the men and the women's public bathrooms. They're right next to my room. And I have to go through the main women's public bathroom to get to my own bathroom. So I have a little separate bathroom with a toilet sink and shower and has a locked door. But I have to go through the public women's bathroom to get there. And because of that, uh, I, I take care of it. And the men's bathroom is right. And I, I'm living right next door. And there isn't anybody else to take care of it. Okay. So uh, we're in a very rural area. And uh, right next to my room is a rose garden. So I have now discovered for the first time in my life that the larvae of Japanese beetles, you all know Japanese beetles like roses. So the larvae of Japanese beetles are these absolutely revolting, disgusting creatures. And I mentioned that at the beginning of the class. You know, they're really disgusting. They're about an inch and a half, two inches long. They're about a quarter of an inch, half an inch wide. They're semi-transparent, and their, their method of locomotion is actually really weird. They're like writhing. They're, they're not like a snake's. A snake is graceful. A snake's movement is actually attractive. And like an inchworm, you know, there's some grace to it. But with these things, these larvae, they're, they have this, just the way they move is, is awful. They look awful. The way they move is awful. And uh, 
I've, I've had to clean up some that got stepped on, and it's really a mess. And, and one of the one of the brahmacharis here told me that he accidentally stepped on one, and it splattered goop all over his dhoti and all over the walls. I mean, they're just awful, awful things. And uh, they especially come out in the morning. So before Mangalartik, I check both the bathrooms and uh, clean them up. And, and every morning I've been cleaning up somewhere between 10 and 30 of these. And it, it's, it's a very unpleasant, repulsive thing to do. And often I'll clean them all up and then an hour later they're all over the place and then another hour later again they're everywhere. By the time midday comes along they've, they've pretty much stopped. So I could be doing this in a mood of repulsion very easily. I mean, they're, uh, they're repulsive beings to a human being. So I decided that I really didn't want to be doing the service that way. It's a service, and I didn't want to be doing it in a mood of, of repulsion, that that wasn't the, the kind of consciousness I wanted to have. So I thought, what about this is positive? And I thought, well, one positivity is that the whole reason that we have these bugs is that we're in a rural area, that if I was in a city, or even probably you know a suburb, but at least a city, I, I wouldn't be having this, this problem with these, these grubs. So I thought, do I like living in a rural? I like it very much. I very much like living out in the country. So this is part of living in the country, is you have these bugs. And I thought the other thing is, this is a service to the devotees. You know, I'm cleaning up up to 30 of these bugs every day from the bathroom floors. So just imagine if I didn't do that. Like we also do a thorough clean of the bathroom once a week. But, you know, 30 times 7. <laughs> so, you know, 240 of these, and they're big. 240 of these grubs would be, imagine... You know, you wouldn't be able to walk in the bathrooms without stepping on them and, and have their, their gunk splattered all over your clothes. So just doing this daily, many several times a day, cleanup is a service for the Vaishnavas, that the Vaishnavas are, don't risk stepping on these, these bugs. And then that made me feel very happy. So I was able to turn something revolting into something pleasing by changing my mood towards it, by changing how I thought about it, by changing my mentality. I mean, one day when it was really bad, I even started singing, you know, I'm so happy I live in the country and I can serve the devotees. And I was going around singing while I'm cleaning them up. I'm like... I'm so happy I live in the country where there's these disgusting buggies and I'm so happy I can save the devotees from the disgusting buggies. And I was like dancing around the bathroom cleaning these guys up. So what we consider favorable and unfavorable is in our mind. Like the Avanti Brahmana says in the 11th canto, it's, it's all in the mind, how we see it. You know, am I going, Ew, I have to clean up these iron things. I can't stand it, you know. Or is it like, wow, what a privilege I have to live in the country and to serve the devotees. You know, so it's, things are neutral. Everything materially is neutral. Everything materially is neutral. There's no rasa in anything material. There just isn't. You know, we're superimposing something on it according to our conditioning and according to our circumstances. So if we taste the real rasa, 
then it's very easy to become neutral toward the, the false. Is that all right? Yes. Ramananda, is that all right? Yes, yes. Very detailed. Uh, can't argue with that. Thank you. All right. Thank you very much for this opportunity. Shiva Prabhupada Ki Jai.